Well, good morning, church. Uh, I know what you guys are thinking. That's not Tim Patrick. Uh, we had promised you Tim Patrick this morning, uh, but yesterday afternoon, uh, I got a call from Tim. And as I answered the phone, uh, it was one of two things. Either he was trying to be a South African and put on a cool South African accent, or he was really ill. Now, it turns out he was really ill. Uh, and he was very apologetic. He's saying, listen, I've tried. I, I was hoping I could get better. I just seem to be getting worse. Uh, but unfortunately, I'm going to be unable to be with you guys tomorrow morning. And anyway, I stressed my sympathy and said, hope you get better. And I uh, put the phone down. And then suddenly, this thought came into my mind, what do I do now? Uh, I, I'm going to have to be preaching tomorrow. And it's kind of like that moment, I don't know where you've had it, where you've kind of forgotten that guests are coming around for lunch or dinner. Has that ever happened to you? It happens to us all the time. I'm notorious for double booking, right? So it's suddenly like you meet, I'm like, oh, we'll see you soon. And I'm like, oh, no, they're coming around. And I give like that SOS call to Irina, and I was like, honey, I'm sorry, I've done it again. People are coming around. And what do you do? Do you kind of warm up leftovers in the microwave uh, and kind of feed them? Or do you kind of whip up this amazing meal? Now, my wife is amazing. She always does this incredible job of kind of providing, so, uh, and she forgives me for, for double booking some of the time. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I just felt that today as we, we're coming to the end of the series in Simon Peter, it doesn't deserve a warmed-up meal, right? We've come a long road with Simon Peter. We've seen how... Jesus has taken this man who was a reed, who was easily blown from left to right, to the man who's now a rock, stable, solid in the Lord, and it deserves a fitting end. Uh, now, just before I, I was working on this message last night, we just put the kids to bed, and my daughter got out of bed and came through to our bedroom, knocks on the door, and she says, um, are you preaching tomorrow? And I said, yes, sweetie, I, I am now. And then she said, is there kidsmen on tomorrow? And I said, yes, sweet it is. She goes, oh, good, because I couldn't sit through another one of those long sermons of yours. <laughs> so there's one person that's happy today that kidsmen is on, so we're really grateful for kidsmen. Uh, but anyway, besides my daughter's attitude, uh, I have to be honest with you, after I put down that phone, my attitude wasn't the best. To be honest with you, I wasn't so keen to go home and then have to prepare a message. Uh, my attitude was all wrong. I think it's been a, a busy kind of week. There's been sort of things that have come up, and I was really just looking forward to a nice Saturday afternoon with not having to prepare a message. Now, the irony was, uh, I, in the morning, I took my son to play cricket, and I was sitting next to one of the other dads who also happens to be a pastor, and he had his notebook there, and he was going through his sermon for tomorrow. And I laughed at him, and I said, I don't need to do that tomorrow. And I even told him this joke. I said, you know what? There's two kinds of peace. There's the peace of God, and there's the, the peace of not having to preach on a Sunday. And, and he laughed, but I laughed last, because God has a sense of humor too. Uh, but anyway, sometime between 6 and 6.30 last night, my attitude changed. It suddenly went from like, oh, this is something I have to do. Uh, what do I need to do? Go into sermon prep mode. To suddenly, I just opened up God's Word and I read 1 and 2 Peter. These beautiful lessons, these letters. And I just realized 
God's word is this absolute treasure. It deserves every honor. It is an absolute privilege to be able to stand before you and share God's word. So this morning, we're going to take a look, a brief look at Simon Peter's letters. We're going to look at 1 and 2 Peter going in and out. But the most important thing is we're going to see this man's heart for people. We're going to see his attitude change. And Simon Peter had this incredible attitude change. We're going to see an attitude change particularly to two areas, that of suffering and death. So have some grace for me. But here we go. Uh, When Simon Peter came to die, he had run his race. He was crucified, as Jesus said he would be. But here's the thing. Uh, Tradition has it that when he came to be crucified, he asked, can I be crucified upside down? Because he didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord and Master Jesus. But here's the thing. He faced this horrible, cruel, painful death, but he faced it with a calmness and a peace and without any fear. Now, why was Peter able to do that? Why was he able to face a violent death with such peace, such a calmness, and above all, with peace, with peace? And the question I ask is, would I be able to? Would, do I have that same peace, calmness in moments of severe trial and testing? Or is there fear that bubbles beneath that? You know, maybe for many of us, it's not death that you're facing, but you might be in a season of severe trial. Do you have that peace? Do you have a calmness? Do you have a love from the Lord that sustains you through that. The question we have to ask, because Simon Peter wasn't always like this. We've learned Simon Peter actually really wasn't like this at all. So the question is we ask is what changed him? Or more importantly, who changed him? Now, we've looked at Simon Peter who's had many different roles. We looked at Simon Peter the evangelist who preached one sermon and 3,000 people came to believe in Jesus. We looked at Simon Peter, the elder, who battled difficult problems and tensions within the church. He did it with such wisdom and grace. Then we looked at Simon Peter, the pastor, who cared for and shepherded the flock of God with all love. But you know, he had other roles too. He was a husband. And um, I'd love to know what kind of husband he was. I'd love to know what his wife would have said about him. You know, he was a fisherman. Imagine being married to a fisherman. Every day, come out, honey, you stink. Uh, but I wonder what his wife would have said about him. Uh, I have this, this feeling that she was incredibly beautiful. But maybe not in the way that you're thinking. Because in 1 Peter 3, Simon Peter writes about what it means to be beautiful. What it means to be truly beautiful, not just skin deep beautiful, but truly beautiful. And he says, you know what, you don't need, you don't need jewelry, you don't, and all the men say hallelujah, you don't need jewelry, you don't need fancy clothes, you don't need a fancy hairstyle to be beautiful. He says, what you really need is to be beautiful from within. Now, just a side note, when I graduate 
to university, I worked for a cosmetics company for about four or five months. Uh, so I wasn't trying on the cosmetics. I worked in the accounting department. Uh, but one of the perks for working with a cosmetics company is that you got a 50% discount on the products. And I couldn't care less about cosmetics products. But I went to church one day, and I casually mentioned to someone in our community group, I said, hey, I get a 50% discount at a cosmetics company. He has a catalog. Literally, overnight, I became the most popular guy in church. I, was, I would go to a community group, and I had all these little bags and orders, and I, would like, I was like Father Christmas handing out candy. But you know what? I could only ever help with outward beauty. But what Simon Peter's talking about is a beauty that comes from within. And, you know, his wife, I can imagine, she was like any, anyone else. She wanted to build a home I uh, wanted to settle in one place, and yet she gave all that up willingly to travel with her husband uh, to these far-off places. Paul writes, and he says this. He says, people uh, don't, we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brother, brothers and Peter. So Peter obviously took his wife with him on his travels as they traveled from com- country to country. Now this couple, they traveled Together, all through the unknown world, they didn't travel first class. They didn't go in an airplane. It was pretty rough. They didn't do it because they were keen on sightseeing. They didn't do it uh, because they had the travel bug or because maybe it was on their bucket list. They did it because they wanted to preach the gospel. And they wanted to go and check up on those people who had come to know Christ. They wanted to see how are they doing? You know, those people who, who came to believe at Pentecost when he preached and 3,000 got saved, they were from all over the known world and they went back to their different parts of the world. And Simon Peter wasn't the kind of evangelist who preaches a message, gets a decision, has a prayer, and then moves on. No, his heart was for the people and he wanted to go back to them and check how are they getting on in the Lord? Are they standing firm? Are they maturing? Are they being discipled? So this big fisherman, he traveled throughout Palestine, throughout Israel, checking up on people. How are they doing? Preaching the gospel. And then one day, I can imagine he must have looked out at the sea, and he thought about all those those disciples who had been spread out into the world, and he thought, I've got to go to them too. He thought about all those people who don't know Jesus, and him and his wife got on a ship, and they went to a lot of different places. Now, it tells us that eventually... As far as we know, uh, that Peter arrived in Rome, uh, probably at Paul's request because there was a a little bit of division that was happening in the church of Rome between the the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers, and you can read about that in Romans 9 to 11. But Peter arrived in Rome. Now, the culture in Rome had gradually changed quite significantly, right? And If you read about it, it's actually very similar to our culture today in the fact that anything went. It was kind of this wild living. And Roman history tells us that in the middle of the first century, Rome had this reputation, this bad reputation for this wild living. You could do whatever you wanted uh, in Rome. And what had happened was Rome had fought its main wars. They were behind them. And they were now in a period of peace and prosperity, and they became wealthy. 
Now, what do you think happens when a culture or a nation becomes wealthy? Do you think that they generally become better or they become worse? Well, for Rome, they slipped into this decadent lifestyle. And honestly, it's kind of weird. You read the history of Rome, and it kind of feels like you're reading about culture today. It's incredibly similar. So some of the things that were happening in Rome during this time, sport was a huge thing. But the Romans also kind of enjoyed a little bit of violence. And so they thought, let's just marry these two things together. Uh, And they thought, we're not just content with just games anymore. So there's got to be a bit of blood involved. And they hadn't thought of footy at that time. But uh, they got, at first they got animals into the arena, these wild beasts. And they had these warriors sort of killing the animals in, in front of the huge crowds. And then that wasn't enough. So they got some gladiators who would slaughter each other in front of the crowds. And it wasn't long before they worked out, well, let's get the Christians into the arena. And they were slaughtered for entertainment. You know, Rome had this appearance that the culture was becoming freer and freer. It was becoming more liberated. But the truth is it was becoming more and more entrapped and it was falling apart. You know, it used to be that a divorce in Rome was like a a social stigma and it was almost unheard of. But then you got to the middle of the first century And it records that there were more divorces than there were marriages. And that's probably true of our our Western culture today. So in Rome at this time, Peter comes into this and he sees that the culture is is, is set on violence. It's the family life is falling apart. Sport is becoming corrupted. Does that sound familiar? Everything was kind of losing its, its moral grounding. And there in the middle of the city of Rome is this little church, this church of believers. And the church had problems. But Paul and Peter were determined to to remind the church that they are one in Christ Jesus, that they are called for a purpose, that that they're there to be witnesses to the things that the Lord has done. And the emperor at the time he was this, this young guy. He was apparently a fine young man who had come to power. He was incredibly creative. He used to compose his own music. He had a flair for art. He loved to design buildings and imagine building Rome one day to be this great capital. The only thing was that he was corrupted by power. He had these great ambitions, but he became this power-hungry man, and his name was Nero. Now, if any of us have read about Nero, it's the kind of name that should actually shen- shivers down your spine when you read about some of these things that he did. No one knows him for, uh, for his, his achievements or his creativity or anything like that. They know him for his cruelty and what he ended up being. Uh, that was the Rome that Peter came into. And there's something that you, you kind of pick up as you read the letters that, that possibly happened during the time that Peter was there. And it's this, it's this great fire that destroyed the city of Rome. Uh, everything went up in flames, right? The, the buildings of stone, they didn't burn, but most of the houses, they were made of, of wood and they were packed together. And as the fire went up, it just spread and destroyed this whole city. 
And no one really knows who started the fire or how it started, but everyone became very suspicious of their own emperor, Nero, because he had openly said he wanted to rebuild Rome. He had these plans and his ideas to make Rome this wonderful capital, but he couldn't do it because people were living in their homes and they were in the way. So suddenly there's this fire at the right time and people were saying Nero did it, right? He's gone mad and he's destroying our very own city so he can build his dreams. But when the, these people were now homeless and they had nothing to hold on to, they, they looked to someone to blame. And Nero suddenly found I'm in trouble, right? I don't want the people turning on me. So he thought we've got to find someone to blame for this. And who are the most unpopular people at the moment? And somebody said, well, there's a little group of Christians following this guy called Jesus. Like, they're pretty unpopular. How, how about them? And from that day, Nero began to spread this rumor. And he said, Christians, they are bigoted, they are narrow-minded, they are dreadful people. He said that they're cannibals, that they eat bodies and they drink blood. He had kind of heard something about communion and he had turned it into something evil. And he said all sorts of horrible things. And as these rumors spread throughout the streets of Rome, this hatred for Christians became contagious with everyone. Christians were arrested, and they were put under such horrible, torturous conditions. Some of them were crucified. What he did to others was that he would would take skins of wild animals, and he would sew them into these skins, and then he would push them into the arena, into the Colosseum, and he would set wild beasts on them, and they were eaten alive for entertainment. But that wasn't the worst. Nero had his own special punishment for the leaders. He would get them, and he would cover them with this tar and this pitch, and then he would tie them to posts, And he would host these garden parties. We would invite all his guests. And as the sun set, he would then set them alight while they were still alive. That was Nero. Nice guy. And Simon Peter is there, and he's seeing all this. And I can imagine just his heart for people, how broken this was. And he's praying for them, and he's crying out. And he, he sees these flames, and out of them is this horrible persecution that breaks out. Simon Peter had no idea at that time how far this would spread. The persecution that started in Rome, it just rippled out into the whole world. And Christians began to be persecuted everywhere they were. You know, Simon Peter didn't know this at the time, but that persecution that began under Nero would last over 200 years. And so Simon Peter thinks, I've got to get this down in writing. I've got to warn my people of what's coming. I've got to let them know of the truth that is in Christ. So he thinks, what can I do? As this persecution is breaking out, I've got to let the disciples know. I've got to warn them of what's coming. So he writes this letter and he tells them, listen, you've got to be prepared for persecution. You've got to get ready for for suffering. So he would have called a secretary and then Mentuensis, he would have been called a guy by the name of Sylvanius. And he said, Sylvanius, you've got to write this down. Dear exiles, in the dispersion of Pontus Galatia, I write to you. And that's how he wrote 1 Peter. And if you read 1 Peter, he strikes this note the whole time of suffering. But here's the crazy thing, right? He tells them, I want you to get ready 
for suffering because it's coming. But how does he do it? But the amazing thing is Peter never says run. He doesn't tell them run away. Persecution's coming, just run, flee. He doesn't say that. He says actually there's this one thing you've got to get right. And it's, it's probably not what we would go to. What he tells his people to get right is you've got to get your relationships right. Make sure your relationships are right. That's the thing that's going to help you be strong through times of suffering and persecution. Isn't that amazing? The first thing he says is you've got to make sure that your relationship with the Lord is strong. It's right. Make it sure. He says this, make sure that even though you have never seen him, you love him. So that when he comes, you just look for your eternal reward and glory. Make sure your relationship with him is strong. Make sure you're, you're reading his word, that you know him, that you're walking with him. If that's true, you will be able to stand when times of suffering and persecution comes. He also says, make sure that your relationships within the church are right. That as brothers and sisters in Christ, that you are one in Christ, that you learn how to love one another, that you learn how to forgive one another. He says, make sure that your relationship with the government is right. Make sure that you're doing what the law of the land requires, that no one can accuse you of wrongdoing unless it contradicts God's law. But make sure that your relationship with the government is right. Make sure that your relationship with your employee your boss is right. Make sure that you're behaving in such a way that they can only ever speak good of you. Make sure that the relationship with your husband and wife is right, that it's godly. And if you get this right, you will be able to stand. You'll be able to face suffering. You'll be able to face persecution. I mean, I don't know about you, but I find this such a profound message because I believe Peter's words are so much for our times and our culture today. Now, I don't like saying this, and I bet you you don't like hearing this, but I believe it is going to be tough for Christians. It will be tough for us. And Scripture clearly warns us that it's not going to get easier for Christians. But here's the thing. When suffering comes, when persecution comes, don't panic. Don't panic. Don't go and buy a little house and dingo whoop whoop. Stay where you are. Don't run away. Focus on your relationships. Be witnesses where you are. Make sure that your relationship with the Lord, make sure your relationship with your brothers and sisters, make sure that your relationship with the government and your boss and your family, that they're good. Then you will be able to stand. So City Reach, how are we doing with that? What are our relationships like? Are, are we strong? You know, one of the things that we say that we value highly as a church is this thing of community, of fellowship, of, of walking with one another, of knowing one another, of being there for one another. That is a God-given value. He wants us to be close. You know, we, we look at this, and really what we see is a total change in attitude in Peter's heart to suffering, right? The, the second change that 
you see this total turnaround is his attitude to death. Now, if you see, what, what is the world's attitude to those two things? To suffering and to death. Well, you can actually see it in Simon Peter, right? In, in Simon Peter, you could see it like once upon a time when suffering was going to come upon Simon Peter, he refused it. He wanted to have nothing to do with it. He wanted to run away from it, right? Jesus said to Simon Peter one day, he said, Simon Peter, the son of man must suffer. And you know what Peter's reaction to that was? He didn't say, oh, well, thank you for letting me know in advance, Jesus. I'm here for you. No, Peter actually rebuked Jesus, and he said, never. No, that's not the way it's going to work, Jesus. We're going to build a nice kingdom. Just, it's going to be nice prosperity, and, and it's going to be good. You're going to be the king, but it's not going to be the suffering thing. And Jesus had to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Like strong words. You, you are, do not have in mind the things of God. And now we see in Peter throughout this letter that he writes is this thing. He says, rejoice when you suffer. Rejoice when you suffer. Right? He, he didn't say refuse suffering, reject it. It's not of this kingdom. No, he said actually when it comes, rejoice. Now, I don't know about you, but the greatest suffering one can experience is suffering unjustly. Like, I mean, if, if you do something wrong and you get caught for it and you need to suffer for it, that is one thing. It's not pleasant, but you're kind of like, well, I deserve that. But another kind of suffering is to suffer when it's unjust. When someone says something about you or you get blamed for something that you know it's not true. That's a whole level of suffering. How do we cope with that? How do you cope with that? Simon Peter looks at that because that's what was happening. And Simon Peter said, you know what? Rejoice. Rejoice. Now, why is he able to switch his attitude to suffering so much? See, the answer is actually very simple. Simon Peter found it in, in two ways. The first one was the example of Jesus' suffering. You see, Simon Peter now knew. He had seen it with his very eyes. He knew it was possible to turn the other cheek in the midst of suffering because he had seen Jesus do it. He knew that it was possible to forgive people when they're spitting on you because he had seen Jesus do it. Simon Peter could look at the life of Jesus and say, that's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to follow Christ. What an example in the face of suffering. You know, he looked at Jesus and he saw when Jesus was, was reviled and he was insulted and all sorts of horrible things were said about him. He didn't respond with insults. He responded with grace and forgiveness. What an example to us. But you know, another thing that, that helped Peter in his attitude change to suffering was he could see the effect of Jesus' suffering. You see, Jesus' suffering is the biggest blessing to this world. It is the biggest blessing to you. You see, Jesus' suffering was not wasted. It wasn't just a good example. No, actually, on the cross, as he suffered unjustly, what the gospel tells us is that he bore the sins of the whole world on him. 
unjustly, but he bore them. He took them. More than that, he gave us his righteousness. Peter sees that and he goes, that is amazing. I can see that, that his suffering produces fruit. An amazingly blessing to the world was the worst possible thing that people could ever do, was crucify the Son of God, and yet it brought about the biggest blessing. You know, that is true of us too. When we realize and we know that, that pain and suffering actually produces good, maybe in us or through us, suddenly it's worthwhile. Suddenly we are able to endure it. You know, this is profound to me, and I, I can't really understand it, but but childbirth, and this is a shout out to all the moms there, you guys have been through this and know what I'm talking about. I can't relate, but I can feel it because when my wife was going through labor, she stuck her nails into my arm during contractions, and I still have those nail marks, but I felt her pain, right? But every mom will go through the trial of labor because they know that at the end of it, there's going to be this life, this baby, which we've celebrated already this morning, that comes out of it. I mean, you'd think maybe you don't know what it's like, so you go through it once and then you forget about it. Not us. We knew and we still did it again. But it's this incredible thing when you know that pain and suffering actually has an effect. It suddenly makes it worthwhile. Now, Peter says to us confidently, he says, now you can actually rejoice in your suffering. You can change your attitude towards it. But he also changed his attitude to death. You know, there's, there's a few things that make Christians weird. And one of them, and makes us different from everyone else, is, is how we think about death, or even how we talk about it. Uh, you know, it still makes us different. If you go and talk to people, and, and you can try me on this, go to work tomorrow and try it with your colleagues, bring up the conversation of death and see what happens. It becomes very awkward. People don't like to talk about it. We use euphemisms to, to pretend it's not ever really going to happen to us. But actually, Christians, we talk about it very differently. You see, Peter was at one time... He just wanted to run from death. He hated the thought of it. You can see it in, in the storm that came up when he's, at the, he's in the boat with Jesus, and suddenly his life is under threat. This could be the end of it. What does he do? He panics, and he says to Jesus, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care? I'm about to die here. I don't want to die. Don't you care? Now, that same Peter that same Peter, he's writing and he says, you know what, I'm going to die very soon. And he wasn't going to die of old age. The crazy thing about Simon Peter is that he knew how he was going to die. Jesus told him, you're going to have your arms spread out and you're going to die by crucifixion. And he told him when he was going to die, like it's going to be soon. I wonder how we would cope with that knowledge. Would you want to know? If someone said to you, I can tell you how you're going to die and when you're going to die, would you want to know? Would you be able to cope with it? Well, Simon Peter was. He didn't just go, oh, no, I'm going to die by my crucifixion. That's horrible. He actually looked forward to it. Now, how can you explain that? How can you possibly explain that? Well, there were two things that motivated him. One was the resurrection of Christ, 
And the other one was the return of Christ. He had these two things, and he knew that they were true, and he, they gave him this hope, this living hope. You know, I think it's the most beautiful thing when you meet a Christian that truly understands this, where truly Jesus is their treasure above all else. And you can see it when they're sick and when they're on their deathbed. There's, this, there's no regret. There's actually this rejoicing. I can't wait to go. I can't wait to be with him. It's just that they, they get it. You see, that's the difference. Peter had the resurrection of Jesus. He goes, Jesus rose from the dead. We have this living hope now, this living hope. You know, death doesn't have the last word over us. Death shouldn't be the thing that we fear most because we've met the risen Jesus. He takes away that fear. You see, because Jesus, through his resurrection, went through death, he defeated death, and he rose from the grave. And because he did that, we will too. We will too, because he did. And that just gives Peter this, this hope where he can just look forward to the day where he'll meet his Lord. But another thing that Peter looked forward to was the return of Christ. The day when Jesus gets back and Jesus is coming back. You know, I think it's funny that Christians will receive their inheritance when Jesus gets back, right? God says, uh, I will keep you on earth and I'll keep your inheritance in heaven and one day I'm going to bring them together. And uh, you guys are allowed to be excited about that. Did you know that your inheritance is amazing and you're all getting it? You see, most people, they get inheritance when someone else dies. But for Christians, we get our inheritance when we die, right? You know, my kids will one day get a little bit of inheritance. Sorry, kids, there won't be too much but you will get an inheritance. But I can say, and you can say, oh, when I die, I will receive my inheritance and it will be out of this world. Excuse the pun, you guys will get it. All right. Peter could say, Paul could say, he wrote, I long to depart. Get me to the departure lounge. I long to depart because I will be with Christ, which is better by far. To die is gain. It's gain. We don't lose much at all. Only a Christian can say that. Only a Christian can say that. Only a Christian can say that without any fear. So we see that between the resurrection and the return of Christ, Peter has this change of attitude to death. We see that through the example and the effect of Jesus' suffering, Peter has this change to suffering. This is a completely transformed Peter. He's a rock. He's at peace. He's about to face death. You know, tradition has it that, that Simon Peter spent his last days in Rome. And we get this from the writings of Clement of Alexandria, who was an early Christian. And one of the things that the Romans did was to, to make their victims suffer more was to have their wife killed in front of their eyes. And this is what Clement of Alexandria said. He said, they, they say that when Peter saw his wife led out to death, he rejoiced at her calling in the Lord. And he cried out 
to encourage and comfort her by addressing her by name. And he said, remember the Lord. Such was the marriage of that blessed couple and their perfect agreement in those things that they valued most. And so when they finally brought Peter out, having just witnessed that, having just witnessed that, they put up a cross, we're going to crucify you, and Peter says, no, turn it the other way around. Now, it would have increased the pain of crucifixion, but that's what he asked for. And that's how he died. Now, there's one word, as I read the letters of 1 and 2 Peter, that keeps coming up. And it's this little word, fire. I don't know if you've noticed that. If you, if you don't mind underlining your Bible, underline the word fire in 1 and 2 Peter. It makes me think that, that Simon Peter would have been looking at Rome, this devastated city, by this fire when he saw a city destroyed, and he would, have, he would have remembered the people sort of scrambling through the ruins, looking, trying to find anything of value that was left. And, and we see it, right? When there's terrible floods that are even happening now, or there's bushfires, you see afterwards people go back and they look, is there anything of value left? Have we lost everything, or is there something valuable that we can find? Now, there was something that remained. The one thing that remained was gold, was gold. You see, the furniture and the homes were destroyed. But the one thing that went through the fire and actually wasn't destroyed but became purer and was refined in the fire was gold. It was actually better than it was before. Peter writes this. He says, when these fiery trials come, your faith which is more precious than gold, is like that gold. It will be refined and purer afterwards. You see, when the fire comes and those testing comes, it refines, but it becomes more beautiful, more precious. What's meant to destroy, it actually brings life. You see, Peter would have looked out at that city, he would have seen it destroyed, but he also knew that it would be rebuilt. And that fire would have reminded him that, yes, it destroys, but it leads to rebuild him. And it would have reminded him that God has promised that he is going to rebuild the universe. He's going to rebuild a new heaven and a new earth, all the planets, all the stars, everything. He is going to disappear. But we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to fear that because God is building a new world, a new heaven and a new earth. And the amazing thing about this world is there will be no more suffering. There'll be no more pain. There will be no more tears. It will be a world in which only goodness and righteousness dwell. You guys are allowed to be excited. That's our hope, right? A beautiful place. What an inheritance that we have to look forward to. You know, as, as far as we know, some of the last words that Peter probably wrote down were these. I want to remind you about that day, and as things were once destroyed with water, they will one day be destroyed in fire, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Church, that's what we have to look forward to. It means anything that we face now any fire that we go through now, we can be thankful for it. We can rejoice in it because we know it's producing something so much purer, so much better. So church, let's not fear. 
Let's remind and encourage one another that we have this living hope. No wonder Peter could face suffering and death in this new way, right? He could look forward to it with rejoicing. He could see suffering and rejoice in it. He could see death and look forward to it. That is amazing. That is impossible if it wasn't for the grace of God. And it's that grace that found Jesus, I mean, that found Peter. You know, when, when Jesus came along and he, and he found him, Peter was a fisherman. At Capernaum, fishing. And if Jesus hadn't met Peter, he probably would have lived and died in Capernaum. And we would have never heard his name. And yet today, 2,000 years later, and millions and millions and millions of people have heard the name Simon Peter. How did it start? Well, it started very simply. It started when Jesus stepped into his life. When he looked at this big fisherman and he said to him, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You know, if he can do that for Simon Peter, he can do it for us. He can. He will make you. Not you will make yourselves. He will make you as we follow him. You know, as we, we come to the end of the series, we've always said right from the beginning, this is not, not a series where we, we look at Simon Peter and we think, oh, what did Simon Peter get right? How can we be more like Simon Peter? Actually, hopefully what you've seen is, is Simon Peter was very flawed and very broken and you can maybe relate to that. But the real answer is we look to Jesus. We look to him who was able to take this man, broken and flawed, and turn him into someone who was, who was fearful and afraid, into someone who rejoiced in suffering, looked forward to death, and was firm in the faith. That's what Jesus can do in your life too. You know, I believe that as we face the future as a church, we have everything to look forward to. God is not finished with his church. He's not finished with the city. There is more to come, and I believe the best is yet to come. But that doesn't mean it will be easier. But I will tell you, it will be better. But our understanding of better is often it's more comfortable, it's nicer. That might not be the case. In fact, I believe it will be more and more difficult to be a true believer in our time. But we are not to fear. We're to lay that at his feet and we're to rejoice in what he has for him and he will use us and he will glorify himself through it. You know, the church has never, ever, ever gone backwards when it's been persecuted. It's only ever thrived. It's only ever become pure and more refined. So rather than not want it, we can rejoice in it because we know it's going to produce something good. But this is how I want us to finish. You know, we can look at Simon Peter and we can relate. <laughs> I'm broken. I stumble. I fall. I open my mouth too much. I say things I shouldn't. I do things I shouldn't. But by the grace of God, he can change us and mold us. You know, the one thing that really kept Simon Peter from moving and maturing in the faith was fear. And honestly, it's the one thing that you minister to most is fear. Fear 
that you will never be enough, fear that you will never have enough, fear that you will not achieve enough. But Jesus ministers to those fears. I wonder if we were having a cup of coffee, just you and I, and I had to ask you, what is your greatest fear? What would it be? Do you know that you don't have to hold on to that? Because Jesus says, right, in, 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 in his love, he drives out fear. He comes, he ministers to you, he drives out fear. So lay it at his feet. Whatever that fear is, fear of failure, fear of being alone, lay it at his feet. Fear of the unknown of the future, lay it at his feet and ask him to replace it with his perfect love. Church, let me pray for you and then we're going to worship a Jesus who is all around us, is never far from us. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for Simon Peter, Lord, that we can call him a brother, Lord, that we look forward to meeting him one day. Father, I thank you that the same living hope that was in Peter's heart as he looked to the future, that as he saw the suffering in the world around him, he could see a purpose in it, Lord, that same hope is in us, and we thank you for that, Lord God. Lord Jesus, I pray for us as a church that we would not shrink back with fear, but that we would be filled with hope and courage of what you are still yet to do in us and through us. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be strong and courageous. Lord, as weird as it sounds, help us to rejoice in our sufferings. And Lord, even the worst thing that we can fear death we know it's already been defeated we thank you for that we thank you that your love is ultimately displayed on a cross for us and that is where our hope lies lord jesus help us to lay our fears at your feet let us be reminded that you are for us that you are with us and that you're working all things out for our good Father, I pray for us, I pray for myself as I lay my fears of the future, I lay my future, my fears of identity at your feet. And I pray for the many of us who struggle with those things to be able to lay them at your feet this morning. And Lord, would you minister your love and your grace to those fears. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.